I remember, you know, distinctly our November 2015 board meeting where we said, hey, we want to be an enterprise tech company, not an SMB tech company. And I think the board's question was like, that's great. What's the product? We're not the first person to build an enterprise business. We shouldn't reinvent the wheel. And I think that was a big motivation for us to sort of build an executive team out early. How do you make sure that you maintain sort of a consistent culture? You have to acknowledge that the culture flows top down. Once you can bootstrap a certain size of community and you get a sort of virality going, you do get an enormous amount of bottom-up lift. You know, I think what's changed as every sort of maybe three to six months, really a reevaluation of what am I actually doing, the odds are good that whatever I'm doing is a bottleneck, right? And I should find a way to get myself out of that role. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharczyk from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm really, really excited to have Armand Dadgar with us today. I consider Armand a really close personal friend and somebody I've learned a lot from. He is co-founder of HashiCorp. We've known each other since 2013, maybe early 14. He's a graduate of the University of Washington in computer science. As I mentioned, he started HashiCorp in 2013 with his co-founder, Mitchell Hashimoto, and left after UW, had worked at a mobile advertising company with Mitchell, and then left to start HashiCorp. We're going to talk about the origin story today. There's, there's a lot to Armand's background I'd like to share, but that would go on for a long time. I want to mention one quick anecdote, which I think sums up a unique element of Armand's personality and one of the things that makes him so special. Despite his youthful age, 28, 29. 29 now. You know, he's almost 30. But despite the youth, uh, Armand's thinking very long term. And he and his husband, Josh, have given a, a very sizable grant recently to the University of Washington to fund 30 students from underprivileged and underrepresented and, and first generation backgrounds for full scholarship at UW endowed. So, really a remarkable thing to do and thinking so long term. So, thank you for that. So with that, let's welcome Armand to the stage. Thank you for that uh, overly generous introduction. (laughs) I mentioned that we'd love to kind of get into your personal kind of origin story and the company origin story. So can you tell us a little bit about how HashiCorp got going? I might pepper you with some specific questions, but curious how you want to, you know, portray the, the early days. Sure. Yeah, I think it actually does go back to the University of Washington Uh, Me and Mitchell actually both met on a research project under kind of hilarious circumstances. We had this sort of nightmare PI, and I joined the research project a quarter before Mitchell. I had the worst project ever. We were sort of porting this Python-based runtime to run on, you know, if you remember the old Windows Trio phones from circa 2007, you know, these things had a whopping 12 megs of RAM uh, and ran Windows CE. And so we were porting this Python environment that, you know, you can't even start a Python at runtime under 10 megs of RAM trying to get it to work on this phone. So this horrible project, spent a quarter on it. I threatened to quit if I was made to work on it any longer. And so the PI was like, okay, great. I found this other undergrad who doesn't know any better, Mitchell. 
why don't you train him to take over this thing and then you don't have to do it. And so when me and Mitchell is that went, how you guys met? That's how we met. So the nightmare PI is responsible for Hashi. <laughs> he is, yeah. All right, there we go. And so me and Mitchell met through that. I was like, hey, you're going to hate this project. You know, best of luck to you. You know, ask me if you have any questions. And so we kind of kicked it off from there. Mitchell only survived about a quarter on the research project before he also called it quits. But through that, me and Mitchell became good friends. I stayed on the research project, not working on that. And, you know, over time, what happened at, at just being at the UW, me and Mitchell would hang out all the time. We would go to the local Seattle Ruby RB community, and we just spent a lot of time trying to figure out, hey, within the context of this research project, we're doing a lot of stuff in cloud, but there wasn't a lot of tooling at the time, right? Chef was based in Seattle, but there wasn't a lot of cloud-specific tooling. So we spent a lot of time building our own stuff just for fun, you know, and going to local meetups and presenting on it. Flash forward a little bit, I decide to go into sort of academia, so I apply to grad school. I'm moving to the Bay Area to go to Cal. Mitchell graduates a quarter before me, comes and joins Keep, the mobile ad company that you'd mentioned, and basically pesters me every single day to be like, oh, you have to interview, you have to come. And I was like, okay, if I agree to interview, will you leave me alone, right? Will you stop asking me, right? I don't want to go into industry, you know? And he's like, okay, sure. If you at least interview, meet the team, and you don't like them, then, you know, fine, I'll stop bugging you. And so I came in, met the team. It was my first interaction with a startup. So I'd done a few internships in industry, and that taste of industry was like, no, I don't want to be in industry at all. You know, big tech wasn't what I thought it was. And so I met the team, fell in love. It was like a six, seven person, uh, you know, company. The energy was just incredible. Everyone was, you know, working around, you know, four IKEA desks in a, in a room. And I was like, okay, I'll give this a shot. Deferred starting at, at Cal for a year, ultimately dropped out, sort of cliche type of thing. Stayed there for three years where me and Mitchell worked closely every day. And I think what we found in that environment was, you know, even though we're an ad network, we're spending most of our engineering cycles building infrastructure tooling, right? 50% of the engine team was doing provisioning, service discovery, security, you know, auto scaling, things that really had nothing to do with the core competence of being an ad network. Yep. And so at some point we kind of lift our heads up and start talking to our peers around us, whether it was, you know, GitHub, Slack, Stripe, et cetera, and saying, hey, what do you guys do? Right? Like what are you doing? And the answer from everyone was like, oh, we have 30% of our engineering team building platform tools. And we're like, this just seems insane. Why is 30% of every company rebuilding the same set of tools to do cloud provisioning? Like this is just such a common wheel. And so I think that was a bit of the motivation to say, hey, could HashiCorp exist as a company that says, we'll build a common wheel so that everyone else isn't doing you know, the repetitive, uh, undifferentiated lift. And we weren't sure, you know, of, could a business be built out of it? But certainly we understood that there was a market need, right? Just the fact that every single person we talked to that had an in-house team building this stuff told us there was a clear demand for it. Uh, and so that was kind of the origin story. It was kind of, you know, why not us? Let's give it a shot. Let's try and solve this sort of common challenge and you know, figure it out from there. Okay, so Mark Holmes was on the stage earlier talking about marketing, but I think most people have heard the name HashiCorp by now, but for those who aren't that familiar with what you guys actually do, can you talk a little about what it is? What's the cloud operating model and a sure. little bit about Terraform and, and Vault and Console and just sort of how the, how the company is, is positioned to grow from here? Yeah, so most people know us for kind of a portfolio of open source tools. Oftentimes, actually, we're more recognized for the tool name than the company name. You know, we'll meet a company and they'll say, you know, hey, do you guys know HashiCorp? They'll be like, no. Do you use Vagrant? Do you use Terraform? Do you use Vault? Yeah, all of the above. We're like, okay, all of that is HashiCorp. <laughs> and so I think we, we tend to have this very product-oriented approach. So we have a portfolio of tools you know, Vagrant looks at how do I do local development environments, Packer for how do I build machine images, containers, 
Terraform for doing infrastructure provisioning and management, Vault for doing secret management and identity management, uh, Console for networking automation, and Nomad for application deployment. So I think kind of the big picture, if we zoom out uh, the sort of forest, is ultimately what we look at as cloud infrastructure automation, right? If I'm you know, a modern business that's spanning one cloud, multiple clouds, on-prem, plus cloud, et cetera, how do I have a common process and a common tool chain that will span you know, on-prem, cloud, multi-cloud, et cetera, and ultimately, our view is there's these four categories, right? You have to solve infrastructure provisioning, you have to solve security, you have to solve networking, you have to solve developer runtime. So those are kind of the four layers we play in, but in, in sort of a logically consistent framework. It's not right. just random. And do a little humble brag. Just tell us about like what you can about where the company is. 900 people, you know, share some of the metrics around growth. Yeah, so we're a little over 900 people today. We've you know, lasted our Series D, raised $174 million in total. We call 110 out of the Fortune 500 customers. Uh, probably about 300 of the global 2,000 are customers. You know, have been north of 100 million run rate for a little while now. So those are kind of the, some of the highlights stats, I guess. One thing I can share as well is the company's raised $174 million to date. And the last time I looked at the balance sheet, there was more than that on the balance sheet. So not only growing the way you've grown, but actually doing so really efficiently. Our CEO is an accountant. Yeah, okay, so. there you go. So one of the things that I think is pretty remarkable that I'd like you to share is kind of, if you think about your open source projects, most people just assume, oh, they all kind of went like this. But in reality, some of them took a long time to percolate. What, like, tell us about what that was like and what you had to do to get them going. Yeah, I think oftentimes people assume our open source was an overnight success. And I think the reality is none of the tools were actually an overnight success. Actually, quite contrary, some of them were sort of on their deathbed for quite a long time before they saw any success. And so I think what the common pattern for all of them has been, you know, Vagrant may be the, the, the longest burn. You know, I think people think about Vagrant as sort of ubiquitous, maybe a little bit less so over the last few years, but, you know, by far and large is our most downloaded product still. When you looked at the first year of Vagor downloads, there was about 100 downloads, 90 of which were me and Mitchell. <laughs> if you look at the first two years of, of Vagrant, we maybe got to 1,000 downloads, right? And we were probably still 10% of that, right? And so really, to get to the first 100,000 downloads was probably three or four years, right? To get to the first million downloads was maybe five years, right? And then, you know, over time, it's accelerated just because HashiCorp is more sort of a built-in audience, right? So the first tool obviously being the hardest. But even a tool like Terraform, which was our fourth tool that we released, first year and a half, if you looked at a download chart, looked like, you know, life support, right? It's a flat line, basically, right? And we would talk to customers who would be like, you know, we don't understand the point of this thing. Why even do infrastructure as code? What's the, you know, I don't understand the value of it. You know, some of our products like Nomad, which, you know, now it's a thriving business, you know, does double-digit millions in revenue annually. You know, we've had board meetings where we talk, talked about, should we kill the product, right? Should we, uh, you know, divest? So I think oftentimes people think these products were overnight success. The reality is, with open source and any sort of a bottom-up motion, there's years and years of sort of community building, right? It's building that initial set of, you know, 100,000, 10,000 users and supporters who then are the advocates and champions that start to snowball that community. And so what I tell people is like, you know, with Vagrant and really with all the tools, I kind of know the first 1,000 users by name, right? It was local meetup groups. It was going and talking to companies. You know, it's taking a meeting with two people you know, at Groupon who think maybe Vault would be useful, right? And doing a lot of that 
sort of boots on the ground effort, right? I think Mitchell probably did 350,000 miles a year uh, first few years, just going to different conferences and meetup groups around the world, you know, doing that advocacy. So I think it's a ton of that effort in terms of building that initial groundswell. And once you hit a certain critical mass, then it just kind of goes on its own. Then you get the open source community and the flywheel starts to spin. But I'd say the average burn length on most of our projects has been two to three years before they get to that critical mass. Wow. So it really takes like a tremendous amount of fortitude, focus, belief, and then work, hard work, day in, day out. And these are non-scalable yeah. things that you're doing, but you've got to got to do them to get get the projects going. And I think there's a survivor bias too, in the sense that you know, you look at the HashiCorp portfolio and say, well, they're all doing well, but that's ignoring the projects that we've killed or don't talk about. <laughs> right? So it's like, yes, today there's a portfolio of six products, but we've released probably closer to 10 products, yep. right? And we've, you know, those are now below the fold. You don't see them on the website. So it's not that you know, putting in the hard work always works. Sometimes you know, product market fit is wrong. The product's not designed, right? The ecosystem doesn't get it. Whatever is the thing, they don't all work. All right, well, speaking of lack of product market fit, I want to talk a little bit about commercialization. As Jeff and Hans and other GGVers know, we invested in the Series A, I was all excited, and then with each quarter going by, I'd have to say, well, no revenue yet, no revenue yet, no revenue yet, and you guys were hard at work on building a product called Atlas, which you were convinced was really going to hit the market hard. You launched it, and then we kind of heard crickets. Right. Tell us about that process. Why do you think you didn't hit product market fit and how did you recover from that? Yeah, so I mean, enough years have gone by that I can be brutally honest now, which is to a degree, Atlas was to keep our investors happy. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, I think we'd get the question of like, what is the commercial nature of HashiCorp, right? Is this just a really well-funded research project? And for a long time, the answer was yes. <laughs> and so I think we needed to have some sort of answer for, you know, what is the commercial nature of the business? And I think our view was, hey, we have these open source tools. If there was a hosted offering and, you know, take a freemium approach, convert 1% of users, you know, to Atlas at the time was the name of the product, then great, that's one viable path. So I think that was kind of the idea behind Atlas was focus on SMB, kind of a freemium model, convert some percent of open source, you know, swipe a credit card type of self-service. And, you know, I wouldn't say it was without market fit. I think, you know, we had customers like, you know, Postmates and Instacart and people that you would recognize as users and paying customers of it, but it wasn't going to be the future of HashiCorp, right? I think, and I don't think we ever thought it would be, but I think it was, hey, what is a commercial path here? So, you know, park that, right? We sort of spent maybe two years building that, bringing it to market uh, and getting some customers on it. And then 2016, when we sort of finished the build out of the open source portfolio, I think that's when we had a really tough conversation around what is the future of the company, right? Who is the customer? What is the product? And I think there was kind of two major questions that we had to answer, which was one, the customer, right? Is it SMB or is it enterprise? I think what Atlas was sort of going for was very much an SMB customer, you know, self-service, low ASP. But I think for us, the question was really, okay, who can we look to as a successful SMB infrastructure company? Uh, and the answer is sort of nobody, yep. right? There isn't anybody. And so, you know, that was a bit demoralizing. And so we said, okay, who can you look to as a successful enterprise infrastructure company? You're like, oh, everybody, right? You just drive down the 101 and every single billboard is an enterprise company. And so you're like, okay, you know, what this tells us is the odds don't look great if you want to focus on SMB. So I think I remember, you know, distinctly our November 2015 board meeting where we said, hey, we want to be an enterprise tech company, not an SMB tech company. And I think the board's question was like, that's great. What's the product? 
And so I think that became the second big soul search. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we said, okay, if we're an enterprise company, Atlas doesn't make any sense, right? You know, it's a hosted platform as a service with a, I don't remember the price point, but let's call it, you know, hundreds a month start point. This is never going to be suitable, right? And I think what we had enterprises tell us is like, you know, you're living in fantasy world if you think a bank is going to re-platform onto a, you know, a hosted platform that 12 people are running, right? Like, no. So I think we made the decision early 2016 to kill Atlas and ultimately pivot to an on-premise business and say, hey, let's basically take open core model, take the open source tools, build an enterprise version that then is licensed, you know, and add a few zeros to the licensing cost and ultimately focus on the enterprise segment. So the fate of Atlas ultimately was to die. You know, the funny thing is it only took us a year to build it, but three years to kill it. Uh, We weren't (laughs) finally able to get rid of the last customers until last year. So it just tells you how hard it is to deprecate things once it's in production. The decision to go enterprise then, what did that then mean for this small young company? And what did you have to add? What did you have to change in order to be successful selling to enterprise? Everything. You know, I think if you'd asked us earlier before that decision, who's the customer? I think we would have said everyone, right? We'd be like, oh, everyone has an infrastructure provisioning problem, so I don't need it to be any more specific than that. And I think a lot of this is just naivety of having never built a business, right? I think what we didn't realize until you know a few years later was, oh, actually, the way I sell to you know a five-person startup who's going to put in a credit card and never read our end-user license agreement, very different than the way I'm going to sell to Apple, who's going to send me a 250-page legal agreement and argue with me for nine months over it, right? And that's not, not hyperbole. That yeah, really exactly. does happen. So I think when we really realized, hey, these paths are just so fundamentally different, but then made that decision to go enterprise, I think what we started to ask ourselves is, well, what do we need from a sales perspective? Okay, it's actually, you know, an enterprise, you know, Rolex wearing sort of seller, not someone, you know, is making a phone call from our office, right? A very different sales team. From a marketing perspective, it's account-based marketing, it's steak dinners, it's not webinars. You know, from an executive perspective, it's you need someone who knows how to run sort of a traditional enterprise sales machine, not someone who knows how to do sort of digital growth hacking type of SaaS. So I think what we realize is everything is different about it and that uh, it would be a pretty radical retool of the business. And honestly, I think one of the biggest realizations was that me and Mitchell were probably the wrong people to do it, right? It was, hey, there's a whole lot of things that we don't understand about this enterprise path, but this is not new, right? So we're not the first person to build an enterprise business. We shouldn't reinvent the wheel. And I think that was a, a big motivation for us to sort of build an executive team out early. Yeah, so I, I did want to ask you a little bit about the you know, fairly unconventional decision you guys made early on. I think the company was only 30 people at the time and was just dipping its toe into revenue when you decided to, to bring on Dave McJanet, ultimately became CEO of the company. You know, again, not something we typically see at that stage. You know, just tell us a little bit about that process, how you ended up making the decision to, to bring somebody on and then finding Dave and convincing yourself he was a good fit. I mean, it started a lot from this conversation about who is the customer, right? And I think having decided that you know, we wanted to be an enterprise business when we grew up, I think, you know, and the next question being the product, and then the, the third question being who leads this transition, right? And so me and Mitchell for a while had done the very strange and unconventional thing of alternating on a monthly basis who the CEO was. <laughs> You know, kind of told you how much both of us wanted that role. Right? Sort of hot potato. Uh, I was like, no, you take it this month. So I think part of it was driven by me and Mitchell realizing it wasn't necessarily a role that we loved, right? It was something that we would do. I think ultimately I, I sort of ended up being a semi-permanent in that role for a while. So it was a role that we were willing to do but didn't necessarily love. It was an expertise that we clearly didn't have. You know, we felt like 
Could we do it? Sure. Would it be death by a thousand paper cuts? Probably. And so I think the thinking was, can you bring someone in who instead of having a thousand paper cuts is going to have 20, 50 paper cuts, right? No one's going to get it perfect, but they're going to get it a lot better than we would. So I think that was one side of it. And then the other side of it was, would it let us focus on sort of our superpower, which is more of the product side, the customer advocacy, the community evangelism, the things we actually enjoyed and were good at. I mean, you know, let's focus on that rather than the things that we don't enjoy and are not good at, I think was ultimately kind of what drove it. Got it. I remember vividly that like Dave joined right before one of your annual user conferences, HashiConf, and I thought it was really telling when this, you had a new CEO, and yet you and Mitchell got up on stage, and it was clearly your show. Dave was not trying to steal anybody's thunder. He kind of understood, okay, we're going to split responsibilities and split duties, and clearly you guys have, have managed that well. I want, I want to talk about that in a sec. You, know, you mentioned you're up to 900-plus people now. You're still co-founder of the company. You always will be, and you're co-CTO. Your role has changed dramatically over the last, you know, from when I got involved, you were four or five people to now. Tell us a little bit about what that transition's been like and have there been sort of cutoff points? And I think it'd be really interesting for people to hear how you spend your time now versus how you spent it then. Oh, I mean, I, yeah, I joke that basically my job every quarter is to figure out what my job is because uh, it just changes so rapidly. You know, obviously in the very beginning for the first few years, you know, I, I was super hands-on. I, mean, I programmed most days of the week. You know, in every version of our initial products, me and Mitchell wrote a substantial portion of them. So, you know, from early 2013 through to late 2015, at least 25 to 50 percent of my time was still actively in development. So, super heavily involved then. You know, over time, what happened is you know, increasingly moving further and further away from being hands-on keyboard into being more of sort of an executive role to the point where, you know, I, don't, I think the last time I actually wrote a line of code was 2017. It was definitely a, a, a milestone when I got a new laptop and didn't even install any of the developer tools. That's, you know, when the first thing I installed was Outlook, I was like, I know I've turned. And so, you know, I think what's changed as every sort of maybe three to six months, really a reevaluation of what am I actually doing the odds are good that whatever I'm doing is a bottleneck, right? And I should find a way to get myself out of that role. And so if I was programming, it was great. How do I hire someone smarter than me to actually you know, do that and be hands-on? If it was managing the eng team, it was how do I bring in an eng manager or a VP of engineering to actually run the group? When it became more product-focused, it was clear we needed to bring in product management. As sort of the engineering and product groups got more mature and sort of ran on their own, I became much more customer-facing. So for the, probably the last three or four years, I spent 50 to 75% of my time on the road, customer-facing. At some tipping point, probably 20 to 30 sales reps, the request for me to be in, in customer meetings exceeded time in the day by about 200%. And so you start to look at that and say, okay, well, how do I get out of that? Because this is not going to work. And so we started building out a field CTO group. So my job became really hiring in super senior technical folks who could present the company to CIOs, VPs, SVPs, and train them on what's the story, what's the value proposition, take them very deep in the product to be able to have those conversations. Today, we now have a team of uh, three field CTOs globally. And so I still probably spend 25 to 50% of my time with major customers, uh, spend 25% of my time with major you know, cloud partners, ISV partners, things like that, kind of owning the relationship, and then do a ton of outbound advocacy, still speaking at conferences and, and meetup groups and things like that. So the role has shifted very much from being hands-on to much more high-level guidance of product and engineering to sort of more of the outbound face of the But company. you still attend and present at, I think, every new employee 
introduction cycle, right? My goal was to get to the first 100 employees, uh, and I moved that to now the first 1,000, but uh, we'll see how much longer yeah. we're able to do that. Now. So you're wearing a lot of hats, but they're very different hats now than they were when you started. It's really, yeah. really amazing. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is that obviously as you've grown, you've brought on a lot of execs, not just Dave now, but several great people, including Mark, who we heard from earlier today. And it, it's obviously super important that you continue to add great executive strength to your business as you grow. You know, your customers demand it and really require it for you to, guys to continue to be successful and not, not keel over at some point. But you know, that puts pressure on the org to make sure you hire the right people and if you've made mistakes, to try to rectify those as quickly as possible. Can you share some thoughts around you know, how you've gotten better and the company's gotten better at making sure when you hire execs, you hire the right people? And any thoughts around if you've made a mistake, how you've tried to deal with those? Yeah, this is like the toughest question of all. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's a few things to it. I think one of the things that we've learned is how important culture is. I think, you know, especially as a distributed company, especially as we get to 900 people, it's almost impossible to really get to spend a ton of time with each executive in their functional domain with their team. So at best, you get to interact at a pretty high level with the department leads. And so what's tough then is how do you make sure that you maintain sort of a consistent culture? You have to acknowledge that the culture flows top down, right? So I think we over pivot on the cultural selectivity, right? I think oftentimes when we are interviewing people, you're like, wow, this person seems like an incredible candidate, amazing CV, but you're like, they just don't seem like they would culturally jive with us, right? Either, you know, whatever it is, too much ego, not collaborative enough, too, maybe too much of a sort of a command and control approach to things. Whatever it may be, I think we over pivot on selection of the culture piece because I think that's such a key element of how we're able to scale mm -hmm. uh, is maintaining that. So I think that's one piece of it is kind of that over pivot on that side. I think the other thing is, and it's the most cliche advice of all and yet the hardest advice of all to hire is, you always fire people too late. No matter what you tell yourself, no matter what you tell other people, yeah, I can tell you fire faster and yet I don't fire fast enough. So, you know, I think that's the hardest piece and it's just, you have to remind yourself that, you know, and part of it can be, hey, you hired them and immediately it's obvious that their culture fit or the performance isn't there. You know, sometimes those are easier and I think those black and white cases are actually the easy ones to deal with. The much, much, much harder one is the person that was great for three years that you outgrew. Where it wasn't a performance mm. thing, it's not a culture thing, everyone loves them, they do great work, but yeah, the person who's right at 50 people and the person who's right at 800 people might just be a different person, right? And oftentimes in many functions is a different person. And I think that's super hard because you know how many grains of sand make a beach, right? Were they the wrong person at 500? Maybe. Were they the wrong person at 600? Maybe. Were they the wrong person at 800? Definitely, but now you've waited too long, right? And so I think that's just a super, super tough one and I think the best thing you can do there is really regularly have that cadence with your executive team on, tell me what your org chart looks like a year from now, 18 months from now, two mm -hmm. years from now. Mm -hmm. What does your process look like? What do you need in terms of your lieutenants? And I think what you start to see is the people who are going to be able to scale, they can project it to you three years from now at 5x the org, what it's going to look like, versus the folks who are you know, not really sure how 18 months from now looks like, you know, probably shouldn't be there six months from now. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I think that has been a, a tough one for us because I think it's, it doesn't get any easier because you, you know, if you spend years working with someone and they're a great culture for it, you know, that you become friends, you become colleagues, right? It's a, it's a tough conversation. Got it. Okay. Shifting gears a little bit, we talked about 
you know, your model being commercial open source, and you've talked about your, you know, your open source projects and how much time you and Mitchell both continue to spend on um, that community and nurturing that community. How do you guys make the decision between what ends up in open source, what ends up in commercial, and, and orient the companies that way? Yeah, so I think there's a few like key rules of community, which is like one, you need to be consistent, right? Because I think what community hates is an inconsistency of hey, on this product you said X was open source, but on this other product you said X is commercial. So communities hate that, and they are extremely loss averse. So if you take something from open source to enterprise, God help you, right? Yeah, not good. So you know you can go the other direction, right? You can take a thing from enterprise and graduate it to open source, but the reverse is sort of uh, you know a complete nightmare. So, you know, I think if you start with those as your starting point, you want to be relatively conservative, right? You don't want to say, hey, let's make a bunch of stuff enterprise, take things out of the open source, and then figure out what works and move things back and forth, right? I think that drives people nuts. Plus, you need a consistent story of why. And if you have a good answer and you consistently apply that, I think communities are okay with it. So for us, what we really try to do is say, hey, how do we align ultimately to who we want to pay us, right? We don't expect the five people in a garage to pay us for the open source. Our market is sort of the enterprise, as we decided. So we said, okay, if you're a global 10,000 or Fortune 2000 business, what is going to be the set of functionality that you need that is distinct from the SMB mid-market customer who isn't going to be a commercial customer? And I think what you find is it's compliance, it's governance requirements, it's single sign-on, it's you know, HSMs, it's, you know, it's a bunch of these kind of enterprise requirements that's driven from, hey, they have to be GDPR compliant or they have to be HIPAA compliant or whatever it is, that has a bunch of downstream impact of what they need from a product portfolio. So I think that's where we drew the line and said, hey, everything on this, this side to support you being kind of a compliant global 10,000 business, that's going to be enterprise. Everything else, that's going to be open source. And I think that's really easy to message to the community, right? Because it's like, hey, if you're five people in a garage, you don't have any of these problems. So great, go use the open source. If you're JP Morgan, yeah, you probably should pay us. Right, so I think it ends up being an easy conversation. And is each product run with one product team, or and and one engineering team, or do you end up having oh I separate? See. No, we have a consistent. It's the same product management, same engineering team that owns both the enterprise and open source. Got it. We talked a little bit with Mark and with Erica about go to market and the value of open source in the go to market context. And there's there's some companies here that are open source. Others are trying to do bottoms up adoption. Curious from your standpoint, like where you see the benefits in helping you build your business of being open source, and if you sort of had to make that decision again, if you would still make the same decision. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a double-edged sword. It's definitely not uh, without a trade-off. So I think the the biggest benefit, obviously, is on our is on the marketing side, right? Once you can bootstrap a certain size of community and you get a sort of virality going, uh, you do get an enormous amount of bottom-up lift. Right, A lot of our early sales were just people reaching out to us saying, hey, I want commercial support, hey, I want this enterprise feature, whatever is the case. So I think you get a lot of that kind of marketing lift. The flip side is you make your sales life much more challenging. Right, Your biggest competitor becomes yourself, where customers are like, hey, this tool works fine, it's solving my problems, it's in production, why should I pay you? And so now, you know, A, what's a forcing function, what's a compelling event to actually be commercial? If you're already running an open source in production, you know, now you have to create a compelling event, right? Or there has to be one within the, the business. So I think that makes it much tougher, but I think you have to have a much bigger differentiation between your commercial and open source business. If it's just a very narrow difference, customers will be like, eh, is it, it's hard to justify the cost, right? Yep. Of paying something versus paying nothing. So I think that becomes, I think, the biggest trade-off, right? Between the two is much more complex product management, much more complex sales cycles, but 
much lower cost of actual uh, you know, marketing and a customer acquisition. Got it. Okay, I want to ask you a quick question about the future. Is HashiCorp pretty much done from an open source portfolio and product standpoint, or do you have more coming? Question one and question two, where does the company go from here? Do you think this is like, you want to be a public company someday, or how do you think about the future? What are some of the key milestones for you? Yeah, so I think on the first one, I think we've always been a, a portfolio company. I mean, from you know, being five people, we had five products. So I think our orientation has always been around how do we keep the products narrowly scoped solving a specific problem rather than sort of you know, scope bloat them into these giant monoliths. So I think that's always been our mentality as the company's gotten bigger and we have sort of commercial success and some beachheads in these accounts. I think now what we see is what are the set of adjacencies around the existing products uh, that we can kind of naturally expand into. So there's a number of kind of new projects that are now in flight and will start as open source projects, build a community, and then build sort of enterprise offerings around it. So we're kind of you know, following the same blueprint we have. I think for a few years, we didn't, uh, you know, we purposely stopped expanding the portfolio in 2015, mostly because it's like, hey, we've already made these huge investments in building these open source projects, these communities. Now let's actually you know, connect it to the bottom of the funnel and make sure we can show commercial success. Now that we've done that and we have some breathing space, it's about reallocating into sort of you know, reinvesting, if you will, into kind of future markets and future growth. So definitely a pipeline of new products. I think in terms of kind of where we see the company going, you know, we play such a mission-critical role to our customers, right? This is core infrastructure, right? So this is not a nice to have. This is core backbone of you know, how companies like JP Morgan and Capital One are adopting cloud or modernizing their on-premise data center. So I think we see a ton of pressure from our customers to say, hey, you know, we're making these enormous bets on you. We need to know that you're going to be a large standalone business with audited financials that we can sort of be confident that you know, tomorrow you don't implode and you're the backbone of our sort of technology strategy, right? So... You know, if nothing else, I think our customers are sort of relatively adamant that even today they demand audited financials, right? And so I think there is this natural pressure to be a public business and just give customers that, that confidence. Cool. Okay. All right. We're putting you on the hot seat now. Uh, just a couple of quick questions. Just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Best piece of advice that you like to give other founders? Know who your customers are and know what your product is. It would have saved me years of uh, heartache. <laughs> Seems obvious, but I would have thought. Your favorite book or article that you recommend to other founders? Uh, so I will admit that I am not a nonfiction person. I read so much nonfiction that I tend to avoid it uh, in, my, you know, in otherwise reading. So I, one of my favorite books is Virginia Woolf, To the Lighthouse. Profound impact on just sort of uh, how I think about you know, my goals, my life, my sort of world orientation. So highly recommend it. Cool, I've asked... Over 100 entrepreneurs that question and have never gotten that answer. So that's a good one. Okay, last one. One thing you'd like to be able to go back in time and tell the 23-year-old Armand who was founding HashiCorp with Mitchell back in the 2013 timeframe. You know, I think I underestimated by probably an order of magnitude, maybe two, how stressful and difficult being a founder would be. I thought it'd be like, oh, you know, how much worse is it than working for someone else? A lot worse. <laughs> Especially with the board you have. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. Tough. A difficult boss. But on the flip side, I think I underestimated how rewarding it was by also probably an order or two of magnitude. So I think you know, that'd probably be my advice. Is like, it's going to be a lot worse, but also a lot better than you think. Awesome. Well, this was just a lot better than I was expecting. So thank you so much. Please, everyone, join yeah. me in thanking Armand. Thanks. Thanks so much. That was awesome. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. 
If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.